0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. Twenty percent of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well With All.
1: Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered.
4: You're lucky? Yeah. I've still got time to learn. Time to say goodbye to the people I love. And time to teach my final course. About dying? Not about dying. About living. When you know how to die, you know how to live.
3: That was a clip from the 1999 film Tuesdays with Maury, based on Mitch Albom's memoir of the same name. You may recall the best-selling book shares the final months of Brandeis professor Maury Schwartz's life, and illness from ALS. Professor Schwartz and author Album met at Maury's home in Newton, Massachusetts, where he received 24-hour hospice care. November marks Hospice and Palliative Care Awareness Month, and during this time, experts are hoping to promote family conversations about hospice as a tool for living. Later in the show, giving underemployed adults the tools, the kitchen tools, to build a life of purpose. How a local organization serves both potential employees and employers in the fast growing culinary industry. But first, joining me in the studio, Patricia Ramsden, registered nurse and director of admissions at Care Dimensions, a Danvers, Massachusetts based hospice and palliative care organization. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Callie. Uh, also with me, Beverly Simonini, a development associate with Care Dimensions. Beverly came to Care Dimensions after her husband, Donald, received hospice care before he passed away from ALS. Hello, Beverly. Hello, Callie. And also with me, Graham Chick, a volunteer with Care Dimensions. Graham's daughter, Naomi, also received hospice care after a long battle with cancer. Hello, Graham. Hello, Kelly. Thank you all for joining me. We got a note telling us about November as hospice and palliative care month and noting that this is a time when families come together and it would also be a good time, as was suggested, for families to talk about these issues because it doesn't often happen. Here's some interesting statistics. Ninety-two percent of people want to have the conversation, but only 32% do. But here's most importantly, 53% of patients say they believed they would be relieved if a loved one began the conversation. So I know it feels daunting to people, Patricia, but why is it important for us to begin to have conversations about hospice?
5: Um, Callie, it's very important because without a conversation with our loved ones, it is then... up to the family to guess what you would like. That may not be what you would perhaps want. And so that would lead to an end of life that you would not have chosen. So it takes the burden off families if you can have those conversations so that they know they're following the loved one's wishes.
3: As the two actors were saying, uh, as they uh, played out the Tuesdays with Maury conversations that Professor Schwartz and Mitch Album had, the emphasis was on living, actually. So people are going to hear you talking and they say, well, but they said living. How does that play into hospice as we think of it only as an end of life solution?
5: Yeah. So hospice Mm -hmm. is designed to help you have a better quality of life. So it helps you to live the way you would want to. Hospice can help them to be more comfortable, to do things they want to do and accomplish things, as Maury said, that they would want to do before the end of their lives. But it is emphasizing the quality of life in spending time with family and loved ones and staying out of the hospital. That is one of the big things we hear, that people want to remain in the home and not have to rely on in-hospital medical care. So this enables them to bring the services to them.
3: So, Beverly, your husband um, suffered from ALS, and you eventually entered into the hospice program. Tell me about him first and then how it was that the two of you uh, came to be a part of hospice.
2: I always called my husband the most talented man I will ever meet. Um, He was a filmmaker by profession, writer, producer, director, uh, mostly for large local companies, and he also was really into documentary films about local history very much into history, he had ALS and um, had gone to the hospital. He was very close to death at that time. The hospital really revived him, and that was wonderful because the first thing he did when he could speak was to say that he didn't want to be there anymore. Mm. They immediately called care dimensions and our wonderful, and I say wonderful, few days began because... In hospice, it was it was just the two of us saying goodbye. And when I say that that was a wonderful experience, a lot of people don't believe that. But I tell you, it was a wonderful experience.
3: And because you're free now, you can both hear each other and you're in a space where you can enjoy those hours Correct. as I'm hearing you. Yeah,
2: Correct. <laughs> we, we were very quiet. People came in and out. We did have uh, one day that we allowed... The rest of the family, we invited the rest of the family in to see him. That's what he wanted. He didn't want people with him all the time. It was really just the two of us, and it was a wonderful thing. Some family knew he was passing and some didn't, but they all got to see him. Without hospice, I don't think that would have gone as smoothly as it
3: did. Same with you, Graham. Um, You volunteer now with Care Dimensions, which, by the way, is the largest hospice care center in Massachusetts, we should say. And it's an organization that handles both adult and pediatric uh, cases. Um, So they're very familiar with the range of patients and the kind of issues. And you don't have to have one kind of condition. They're prepared to, to deal with it all, as is hospice as a tool, as we've said. So tell me about your daughter and how you came to be a part of hospice
4: well quick elevator speech on my daughter she came to boston at 17 graduated simmons college three years later fell in love with boston and never left she worked in the not-for-profit world and was a huge advocate of people who perhaps didn't have a voice she contracted cancer at 21 um, had a leg replacement and Recovered for about 18 months, and then it came back very aggressively and non-operative. And she continued to work up until the April of the year she passed, and she passed in June 2018. I became a primary caregiver, uh, making sure she got to her appointments, got to Boston City Hall for meetings, Tried to give her her in, maintain her independence and privacy as a then, uh, twenty-four-year-old going on twenty-five. It came to a point where she was very pragmatic. We'd had the conversation about hospice care. She'd initiated it. We talked at length about it, and I think the perception is that it's a place to go to die, and and I think passionately, it's absolutely not. It is about quality of life. We had wonderful time, again, something that's been echoed for the six weeks that she was at hospice care. And we were all at peace and uh, had some great conversations. And without it, we wouldn't have had that. And as a caregiver, primary caregiver, uh, stepping into the hospice world, it gave my wife and I the opportunity to become parents again, rather than caregivers. and.
3: And there's a difference.
4: Absolutely a difference. You, sometimes you lose sight of being the parent. Um, caregiving is hard work and can be a chore some days. And you lose sight of the quality of your relationship. And it gave us that back to which I'm eternally grateful, which is why I feel so passionately um, about care dimensions and giving back as well.
3: All right. That's my guest, uh, Graham Chick. Um, His daughter and his family was a part of hospice at Care Dimensions. And before you heard, Beverly Simonini, her husband, and she were a part of it. And now uh, Beverly actually works at Care Dimensions. Back to you, Patricia. What is it that you hear from people after they've come to you and elected to be a part of this? And then maybe they say to you, wow, I misunderstood what this was, and now they have a different viewpoint of it.
5: Yes, that's a frequent conversation that we have with families. First of all, they say, I wish I would have started this sooner. The benefit that I am having, I wish I had this weeks or even months sometimes before, that I had a false view of hospice, that perhaps I had a misconception that hospice contributed to dying as opposed to helping you live. So we hear that quite frequently, that people have those um wishes that they would have started it sooner that they had no idea of all the services that hospice provided, all the support to families during the illness and then during the bereavement after. So we Des- describe some of them. So the services are, of course, um a registered nurse that is monitoring your medical care, helping you with medications and treatments, a home health aid that can help you with bathing and things like that so we can let families have a bit of a break, Um, volunteers who can help with shopping, with companionship, perhaps reading or playing cards, doing things that are enjoyable, also social workers and chaplains. And those are psychosocial support people to help people with all the things that end-of-life might be evoking and that patient and also with that family. So it's important that hospice is as much for the family as it is for the patient because they're going through this as a unit. Also friends, um, small children. We have a child life specialist that can help children deal with all the things that are going on,
3: helping them to cope as well. So a lot of people may not know that hospice has been around for centuries, but it, it didn't get to the the States as a tool to work with people who were dealing with these issues uh, until the 70s. So we're still catching up in this country to some large degree um, in understanding this. And I think that that may be why we're just a little bit slow understanding exactly what it is. Though these days I hear more now from people mentioning it as a possibility as something they might explore but again for all from all of you people what you've said is don't wait you know so you have more time i guess beverly that's that's what you express more quality With time more quality time i i think that's what's really important uh, what do you say to somebody who says well in the end you know the end is going to be what it is so i'm not sure i understand what more quality time really means that you know could really help me can you explain that a little bit more The quality time for me was
2: when hospice took over. They made sure my husband was very comfortable. I knew he was comfortable. He was conversant the whole time, although we didn't talk much, the two of us. But with family, he was able to have conversations and just a very normal thing versus sitting there waiting to die, and that's really what we were doing. But it didn't feel at all like that to me. It felt like this is the time I get at the end of this 10 years of horrible disease. This time we have together, and that's what I remember.
3: If someone had uh, mentioned to you, let's perhaps we should talk about this earlier than you, in fact, did, w- would you have been receptive? Because that's the point of this month. This month is National Hospice and Palliative Care. We'll get to that in a second month. And it's to get people to start having those conversations now. I only
2: wish someone had. I didn't know really what hospice meant at the time had I known And I do know now, believe me, the next person that I am dealing with that is passing is going to be a lucky one because it's going to be a lot sooner. Mm
3: -hmm. Graham, same question to you. Would you have been responsive? I know what's interesting in your case is your daughter is the one that said, yes, let's do this.
4: My daughter was hugely pragmatic, so she didn't shy away from awkward conversations, initiating them or being part of them. But had we had the conversation earlier or, you know, in in my life, I probably, prior to this experience, I probably wouldn't have been receptive to it.
3: And why? Why do you think?
4: It's way in the distance, Mm. um, we like to think. But when we sign for being a donor, for instance, on our driving licenses, quite often that sparks a conversation, and this could be done in much the same way. I think the education of what a hospice can give, the services it can give, and again, breaking down some perceptions that it's a place to go to die, um, if those get broken down, then the conversations become easier.
3: So, Patricia, we should also um, make it clear what the difference is between hospice and palliative care. I know it's in the same sentence, but yes. they, they both work together. They yeah. do. Uh-huh.
5: So, so hospice is uh, a Medicare—there's a Medicare hospice benefit. So there's a benefit for hospice, and two things need to occur. That your doctor would, would say you had six months or less prognosis— based on your disease that can change you can live longer but it's a guess by your doctor also that you're looking for care that's focused on comfort and not cure of the disease Um, so that's the hospice palliative care you don't have to have a shortened prognosis like that you would have an illness that may be life limiting um, but it is definitely causing you symptoms and problems Um, so things like als because it's a longer say it's years You wouldn't be appropriate to have hospice if you had been recently diagnosed with ALS. It would be determined probably later on in your disease progression. As Beverly had a 10-year progression of ALS with her husband, at that beginning stages, he would have been a palliative care patient. Later on, he did become a hospice patient. So there's a little bit of a difference. Um, And all hospice has a palliative component in that it's providing comfort and controlling
3: symptoms. So now that we've heard from Beverly and from Graham, and Graham has been honest to say he wouldn't have been receptive early on to have these conversations. What do you tell people about how to begin conversations? Because people are going to be hanging out together through the holidays. um, And we talk about everything else, who's getting married, who's not, and everything else. And this is actually a conversation to have. Um, You can have it whether someone is ill, actually, you know.
5: Yes, it's always good to start, I think, before the crisis happens, because when the crisis happens, you have a limited time frame and you have to make very quick decisions. So I think it's um, a nice jumping off point to just sort of talk about perhaps people that you know that have been forced into situations and the way they've encountered them and just talking about if this were to happen to you, mom— How would you like what would you like us to know so that we don't have to guess so that we don't have to worry that we're not honoring you? And I think most loved ones don't want to burden their families. And so not that it's a guilt trip or pressure, but it's really I think if you're phrasing it that way, I think you can really get to the heart of what somebody would want because they believe then they're helping their family. They're not putting that burden or that pressure on their family then having to Um, guess what mom would want so it's just sometimes you dip your toe in the water of the conversation and you might you might need to come back to it again because it's something that's not comfortable but if you I think if you do it a few times sometimes then it's a conversation that can evolve over time so you're not in that crisis situation
3: if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me, Patricia Ramsden of Care Dimensions. You just heard her. It's a Danvers-based hospice and palliative care organization. We're also speaking with Beverly Simonini and Graham Chick, whose loved ones both received hospice care at the ends of their lives. We're discussing the importance of November's Hospice and Palliative Care Awareness Month. So, Graham, since you've been honest to say um, you 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 wouldn't have been receptive, but now you know something different because you've had an experience, how do you approach someone who uh, maybe could could benefit, that you know could benefit? How would you approach them? Because you're on the other side now and you've seen the benefit.
4: Well, I, I speak about the services and that are available. Um, I talk about quality of life a lot and not quality of dying or going somewhere to die, but quality of life Um, The services, again, I I don't think we've touched on them enough. My daughter had uh, service dogs. My daughter had Reiki, massage. Um, All these things were available to make her more comfortable, make her more relaxed. Uh, She did art projects that um, we treasure today. Um, It was, uh, like Beverly says, a... Amazing experience and a wonderful experience rather than the alternative.
3: And actually you've you've brought up in detailing some of the services that your daughter um enjoyed and you enjoyed with her. That um, hospice is very holistic in its approach. So it's so sometimes people think it's just medicine, um, and maybe just attendance—you know, somebody in the room with you who's a medical professional. But that's really not it. It's just a whole other array of attending uh, to the the physical, but also the mental and the psychological needs.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, peace of mind, and um, again, chaplain services, uh, non-denominational. Um, total peace of mind, I think, in, in a, a situation where there so easily couldn't be peace of mind.
3: Beverly, what would you add to that? Um,
2: n- not too much, because <laughs> Graham's pretty much uh, <laughs> kind of
3: said it all. Um, why, why do you think people are afraid then? Let me ask you that question. Why, did, why are they afraid to have the question? Because he's been honest to say he wouldn't have wanted to have
2: My it. My honest answer is we're all afraid. We'd, we've never gone there. We, but when you have to help someone else go there, or I know for myself, hospice is the first place I would tell everybody to call because I know what it offers now. And the sooner you do it, the better. I, I would stand on a mountaintop to give that message. I so believe that people could really benefit so much more at, at even not near end of life. Six months ahead, do it because it's not going to be something bad. It's something better, and until you experience it, you won't know. Mm -hmm. But after you do, you'll be on the mountaintop with me.
3: What do you say, because now you you work with uh, Care Dimensions, and as you're a person who experienced the services as well personally, um, how how do you uh, interact with those people who are coming into it, um, perhaps not having a good sense of what they're going to find and just trying to find their way? Well, I don't directly interact. I'm really more on the other end of I take calls every day
2: from people that say, "We're so happy you were there because you helped us through this crisis." Like that's what I mean. Really and truly, Mm -hmm. truly understand what hospice did for them, and it's almost to the person when you well it is to the person. I have yet to hear a negative comment. Um, So I hope those people are telling their friends and family because I certainly have, and actually referred a friend. And um, he passed so peacefully, both his son and his wife were holding his hand, and they didn't know he was gone. So it's that peace at the end that I think will make us look at the end of our lives and say, not so bad if you can do that versus struggling to stay alive when your body is
3: really ready to go. You know, the other thing that's come out from what both of you have said and, and, and Patricia as well is that, it feels like you're free to have conversations that maybe now you're on that side you might not have had or maybe you would have on the other side wished you'd had because you didn't have the space. It, it didn't feel comfortable enough. Am I right in that? Would you say that, Graham?
4: Yes. And I think also what it gives, it, it gives control back to um, whoever has the life that is, is ebbing as well. If, if you get that conversation up front, um, they have control. And and I think that's huge for self-respect, um, self-worth, self-value and everything like that. And um, with my daughter specifically, she was in charge. And that was important that she was. And it, and it afforded her the opportunity to stay in charge. Um do you have any sense of what, how she knew about hospice? Um, because
3: she, you said that she was the one that that agreed to, she wanted to do it.
4: Well, we had a lot of dealings with MGH in, in Boston. And um, uh, when she decided to call time out on treatment, which was her decision, and focus on quality of life, uh, they put us in touch with Care Dimension Home Services, um, which then transitioned into uh, Hospice House. That was our connection.
3: And then, she, and then she felt very comfortable with that and wanted yeah. to have it. Okay. Yeah. So, Beverly, um, same question to you. It just feels like you have are a little bit freer in the conversation. And and talk about that, if you would.
2: Well, Graham always uses the word pragmatic when he's talking about himself. And I never used to be. But I'm very pragmatic now, and it feels so natural. It was never natural before my exposure to hospice because it is something we're all going to go through, have the conversation and I, I, don't ever feel nervous having that conversation anymore, and I think that lack of trepidation really rubs off on who I'm talking to.
3: Mm. And then they can they can
2: feel that from you. I think so. Mm-hmm. I'm I look at it totally differently now. There's there's options and they're great options.
3: I also wanted to talk about Patricia about the um, the uh, the expertise that people like yourself bring to the care. And by that I mean when you talked about the difference between hospice and palliative care, you have really got to know what you are doing. And what I uh, really took away from your stories, both Graham and Beverly's, was the clear understanding of how to balance the medication so that people could be in a space to be able to live uh, in the best way as their as their life was leaving them. Do you, do you know what I mean? And you speak about that because so often we see people and they are inundated with medication because, you know, people don't want them to suffer and nobody wants their loved ones to suffer. But at the same time, they've lost the ability to really engage then at that point.
5: Yeah. So the wonderful thing about hospice care is it requires the patient's regular doctor, but then in addition, a hospice physician. So that is someone who's collaborating with the the regular physician. And that that physician might be an oncologist. It could be a primary care. And maybe that doctor doesn't have the expertise because they don't deal with with many patients in those situations. So our hospice MD would coordinate with that doctor. Um, In addition, our nurses are all required to get certified in hospice care within two and a half years of starting their work with care dimensions. So there is a specialty that, um, comes with hospice. It is, um, very expert at dealing with symptoms, um, and those might be spiritual symptoms as mm-hmm. well. So there are staff that are specialists. So there is quite a bit we can do for people. Um, they can that can be done at home most of the time, but also we can use one of our hospice houses if they have a symptom that needs in-house management so that instead of going to the hospital, they can come into our facility and they can be managed by our doctors more closely. So there's a lot we can do to help with those symptoms where before they may have had quite a difficult time, for instance, managing pain or nausea. And now with the expertise of the hospice team, that can really be um, be brought under control and give them that quality so they can focus on things they want to do versus just Working on those medical symptoms, they can really focus on that quality of life, perhaps taking a vacation, perhaps spending time with grandchildren, you know, so that expert management is helping them to actually live longer because they're staying out of the hospital and they're getting that better quality of life.
3: And with regard to the to the medicine, my sense of it is it's a fine tuning. Uh that you know you 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 have the medicine, um, and it's not that anybody's just throwing medicine at people. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that there's something about the precision of just trying to balance it um with the everyday ups and downs of people who are, you know, working with up oh, Graham, you want to add something?
4: Um yes. yeah, perfect example mm-hmm. was Naomi. She went to um she went to the hospice house probably after about a week to 10 days of being very non-communicative based on the, the cocktail of drugs that she was on. And when I mean non-communicative, um, that was why we decided that day was when we were going to the hospice. Um, we thought we'd lost communication completely with her, and that would be that. Within three days, she was communicating. and Probably within four days, her spirit, and her personality was back. Um, so that was balancing the palliative care and tailoring it um, and fine-tuning it, to, to your point.
3: What would you give for those days? You uh, priceless. Mm. Same thing for you, Beverly? Absolutely priceless. Absolutely. So, Patricia... Back to you, because we're, we're going into those times. We're going to be looking at the families. Give us a few words to start this tough conversation. <laughs> and um, and um, so we can take some of what Beverly and Graham have said um, um, to people who may be listening so that it, they know that it's going to be a good experience in the end, and it's really about living and not dying. I,
5: I think with a family member, you have to keep it simple, and you need to keep it— in a circumstance they can relate to. So perhaps um, in my own family, we recently lost a family friend. So that would be a nice way for me to a jumping off story for me to talk about my own mom to say, you know, our our friend, you know, passed away in the hospital, mom. Um, this is how it went. What, what would you think if you were in that similar situation? How would you have wanted it, things to go? Does that ring true to, to your life? And sometimes just bringing it back to something so common can help people to start the conversation, and you you might you might be able to get a little bit more clarity. And um, sometimes, generationally, I find it's difficult. Those are things people don't want to discuss. It could be a cultural framework that people feel if I say the word, it's going to come true. <laughs> that sometimes, you know, if I if I say the word "die," then I will. You know, I may get sick or die. So there's a little bit of a um, a component where we need to be sensitive, but yet start those conversations. And I think family members know their family well. Um, but bringing in that personal element, A story and just starting things sensitively, and maybe sometimes, you know, not making it all doom and gloom, having a laugh about it around the dinner table. Um, One, because I'm a nurse, one time at Thanksgiving, I brought out copies of healthcare proxies for everybody, (laughs) and I got people to sign them. Mm. I got people to sign them, and I said, I'm gonna do one too. Let's all do our proxies together. And I don't have any medical problems right now, but because we were all in it together, everyone embraced it. And we got it done, and we knew a little bit more about each other's wishes for doing that practice. And it was a good time because we were all together, and it gave us that sense of doing this together and talking about it as a family.
3: I think that's a great way to go. And by the way, generationally, here's where I think the millennials may have one on, some of the other people. I think they're a little bit more open about having these kinds of conversations. And it may be that on some of the other generations, not so open about wanting to have these conversations. So they may be ahead on on top of that. Last words. Um, uh, Graham, what would you say? Uh,
4: Have the conversation. Um, I don't think, I think it's becoming easier year after year to have conversations like this um, just based on our cultural environment but, um, and it can be light-hearted, it can be serious, it can be um, taken to an example to kick off. Um, I think everyone that is close to me has had the conversation and hopefully that's contagious as well when they have loved ones as well.
2: Beverly. Do do what you need to do early on so that you can have the best experience possible for the longest period of time. Um, Don't sit there and wait because you're waiting for nothing. Go
3: ahead and make the call. Well, I thank all of you uh, for joining me for this very important conversation. I'm hoping many people heard you um, and There will be some different kinds of conversations around the holidays. Thank you.
4: Thank you.
3: Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Patricia Ramson is a registered nurse and director of admissions at Care Dimensions, a Danvers, Massachusetts-based hospice and palliative care organization. Beverly Simonini is a development associate with Care Dimensions. Beverly's husband, Donald, received hospice care before passing away from ALS. And Graham Chick is a volunteer with Care Dimensions. His daughter, Naomi, also received hospice care in the final weeks of her illness. Coming up, with unemployment at a 50-year low, Boston-area food businesses are struggling to find skilled workers. And yet, some of the population remains chronically underemployed. The New England Center for Arts and Technology, or NECAT, tackles both issues through its training program, matching adults having trouble finding employment with food industry jobs. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. With an unemployment rate of 3.7 percent, various industries are having a tough time finding workers, especially skilled workers. Restaurants and other food services have been hit particularly hard, where there is already a scramble to find enough workers to fill current openings, and where the number of jobs is projected to grow 14 percent by 2028. But a six-year-old local organization has been successfully working to close that gap. The New England Center for Arts and Technology, or NECAT, provides chronically unemployed adults with professional culinary and life skills training and places them in kitchen jobs throughout greater Boston. Joining me in the studio to discuss the program at NECAT, Joey Cuzzy, executive director of the New England Center for Arts and Technology. Hello, Joey. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you. Also with me, Bob Krajewski, chef and instructor at NECAT. Hello, Bob.
1: Hello, Kelly. Glad to be here.
3: I'm glad for you to be here, too. And Randy Brimley, a recent NECAT graduate and current bread baker at Whole Foods in Dedham. Hello, Randy.
6: How are you doing? Nice to meet you.
3: I'm nice to meet you as well. Well, let's dive right in with you, uh, Joey. You've been with the program for four years, even though it's six years old. Tell me how you found it or how it found you.
0: <laughs> I feel like I was always made to be at NECAT. I've been a nonprofit executive director before coming to NECAT. Um, And had a special interest in food insecurity in the community that I worked in. I worked for the YMCA of Greater Boston. Um, And it had actually been introduced to NECAT via the YMCA as we were starting up our own teaching kitchen. And when NECAT was looking for an executive director, uh, Martin Hemsley, our founder, reached out to me. And it seemed like the most perfect job for me, and it has absolutely been that.
3: So six years ago, did the folks who put together this organization realize the big gap that was needed? Was that what drove it, or was there more of a, what can we do with people who are chronically unemployed and this seems to be a good career path?
0: It's absolutely both. Hmm. The philosophy behind NECAT is that you train people in an industry where there really are jobs. So back six years ago, we knew that the industry was booming, didn't know it was going to explode in quite the same way it has and knew that training people in culinary arts would guarantee that after they completed the 16-week program, they would definitely have employment, and that's the goal. The goal is just to, you know, help people who have been underserved in our community, folks who have not had a chance, who have had various maybe barriers to employment, get the skills necessary, and absolutely have a job at the end of the 16 weeks. What's the point of training if there are no jobs available? so we can seamlessly train people and move them right into
3: employment. Okay. Over to you, Bob Krajewski. You were a chef at Salem and in Maine doing your own restaurant thing. This seems to be wholly different from doing what you did then because you're teaching these uh, folks who come through how to work in kitchens.
1: Absolutely. It's one of my favorite aspects of being a chef in in a restaurant is the ability to train young cooks that are coming up, people that are trying to... Really get into the nuts and bolts of what it is to work in a restaurant and and be a better line cook and and as a executive chef and owner. Sometimes one of the best opportunities and best things I have is training. So I was looking for kind of a change of pace, and Joey was looking for an instructor. So there we are. It's it's a real it was a real easy decision for me to make uh, to come on over, and it's absolutely one of the best things that. I've done professionally and having a a great time for the last two years.
3: It's a six-week training program, as we've said, and you do the first part of the training, and then they move on to the finishing part. So, what do you see when a new crop of folks comes in? What What are you looking at? Who Who are these people?
1: Uh, I am. (laughs) I am. (laughs) I am looking at everybody. We call them cohorts. So, the class that we have that just started, uh, I have. About 27 students, and it is a cross-section of every different demographic you can name. I've got some people that are looking to, to kind of not change careers, but, but get into something new. I've got younger students that are a, maybe a couple years out of high school, and everything in between, coming from... Any kind of background you can think of, maybe some people that are in recovery, maybe people that have been recently released, and then people that, again, have different barriers, but have a barrier that, that they're looking to overcome, and, and they think that cat and, and culinary and, and what we have to offer is, is the way through.
3: And when we say uh, people who've just gotten out, Randy, they're referring to people like yourself. Born in Roxbury, had bad turn in your life. Tell us what you were doing before you enrolled in NECAD.
6: Well, I had served a 15-year federal prison sentence for drugs. So while I was in there, I picked up the passion to bake and cook. And when I came home, my probation officer thought it would be a good program to look into. I came home February 27th. The next cohort started March 27th. I was there, graduated July 12th, two weeks after that right in that Whole Foods. Had a couple of offers, you know. So I figured I went, waited, weighed my options out, and went to be the bread baker at Legacy Place. Did my training at, man, my time at kneecap was wonderful.
3: Okay, so you were kind of predisposed to uh, do something in the culinary area with food because you were doing it while you were incarcerated. Yes, ma'am. But when you got in class, was it hard? What, how did you feel when you when you started?
6: It was strange to be in a classroom setting again. It was like, oh man, I'm going through this, you know. But Barb was a wonderful teacher, like book smart. You know, if you didn't know, don't feel ashamed to ask the question. Ask it. Get the answer. Pay attention. Learn. Because what he had to teach you, you might not thought at midnight then, but as soon as you get in the kitchen. Means a lot.
3: Did you have any idea that there was such a shortage in for kitchen help, good, skilled kitchen help in Massachusetts?
6: No idea at all. You know, I'm a big guy so I like to eat. <laughs> so I was like, let's give this a shot. <laughs> Paid
3: it off. It certainly it did. Off. So, Joy Cuzzy, um, Executive Director of the New England Center for Arts and Technology, 65% of your students graduate, period. And then 80% of them, like Randy, go on to get uh, jobs. Um, what happens to the gap that you can't close of the graduates? Well, quite
0: frankly, we work, we continue to work with them post-graduation. Sometimes life just interferes. They're not ready at the end of a 16-week program to take full-time employment. And it could be any number of reasons. It could be lack of housing at that point in time or lack of childcare, transportation. Any of those issues can impede a person's progress to employment. So we don't give up. We work with them continually. We tell them that they can come back. We continue to provide job opportunities until we find the exact match that will work for them. And we never give up. We'll just keep working with them until they find employment.
3: Which brings me to the point that this is more than just training for kitchen skills. Absolutely. Bob's a great teacher. You can have enthusiastic students like Randy. But really what NECAT is is a lifestyle management program with kitchen skills as the foundation. Would you talk about that? Sure.
0: We often say that teaching them to cook, teaching them the cooking fundamentals is the easy part of the job. But there are reasons why people have been chronically unemployed or underemployed. They've either had no opportunities, lack of training. They've had trauma in their background. They've been homeless. They've been in recovery programs. They've been in prison. So all of the social-emotional issues that have prevented them from moving forward are what we try to deal with each and every day to encourage people to be more self-confident, to teach them the basics of what it takes not only to get a job but to keep a job conflict resolution, how to work as part of a team, how to advocate for yourself, what to say during a job interview, what not to say. So our program really has four pillars. One is the cooking fundamentals, all of the skills that you'd need to be a line cook. The second is all the life skills that you need, why it's important to be on time. Any chef in the city will tell you, give me someone who will show up every day, show up on time, do what I want them to do, be a part of a team. That's the person I wanna hire that's what we're trying to impress upon them each and every day. Once they're there, we teach them how to get that job. It's a different world. When you've come out of prison mm. or you've been unemployed, how do you apply online? What do you say about the gaps in your employment history? How do you advocate for yourself? Do you have a? Can you tell in 30 seconds what you can do and what you can't do? Why should you impress upon that employer that they should hire you? And finally, Once you have some money, how do you deal with it? Mm -hmm. Financial literacy. Mm -hmm. So now you have a paycheck. What does that mean? What can you really afford? Are you able now to get housing on your own? Can you get a credit card? How do you manage that money once you have it? So we take a really holistic view of it, and we really feel like we meet people in their journey, where they're at. They need to want to change their lives. We're there to help them. And we'll support them in any way possible. We also have case managers who work with our students on a daily basis, to help them navigate all the various other kinds of social services they may need to be successful.
3: Yeah, that's what makes us different. You're really revamping your whole life, Randy. I mean, you know, that's a whole other way to think about this, uh, right? Because you know, she just mentioned all the other life skills you have to have in addition to learning how to bake the bread. Right? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. um, and how was it for you? Was it? Did it just feel overwhelming?
6: At times it did. You know, you just want, man. I gotta get up and go again. Is it gonna be worth it? You know, but you got the family. It's like a family-oriented program.
3: Were you afraid you might not sort of get it all together at any point? Yeah, mm-hmm.
6: yeah. I was nervous, quiet, pretty much kept to myself. Then you know, start loosening up and going in, paying attention, staying focused. Staying focused is what really made me get through it, knowing it was something different at the end. I figured if I can work in prison for twelve cents. An hour, I can go out there and make a real dollar and get back on the right path, path I need to be on. And they helped me do that.
3: Exactly. I'm Callie Crossley, and you are listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Joey Cuzzy and Bob Kryeski of the New England Center for Arts and Technology, and the recent Knee Cat graduate and Whole Foods baker, Randy Brimley. We're discussing Knee Cat's innovative professional culinary training program that aims to connect chronically unemployed adults with food industry jobs. Now, back to you, Bob Kryeski, because it's sort of like Pizza dough, you know, you gotta knead it, knead it, and knead it. If I can use cooking terms, that's that's my extent here. <laughs> um, so I'm really curious where you're looking at the journeys of the people who come in and what you see at the end. So give me give me an example of like a typical class day and how how you all are working together.
1: Uh, a typical class day starts with uh, our morning lineup, so both classes, the first half of the program and the second half of the program. So first half of the program, they, uh, the first eight weeks they'll come in, and the second eight weeks they move into the kitchen. And we, we start with a little bit of motivation. Uh, it's a hello from all of the, the key staff members. We'll have you know uh, my, my partner, Chef Tom, uh, and I will have our, our kind of opening Uh, conversations with them, telling them what the day is going to be like, what we're going to go over in class, what have you. I try to bring a lot of energy to the morning salutation. I have a thing that I do. And then once we break from lineup, we go into the classroom. So I'll bring my students into the auditorium. And from there, we go into whatever the lesson plan happens to be that day. Uh, It'll be talking about stock or talking about our cooking technique of the day. We might be talking about knife skills or any of the, the foundational things that, that I cover in my class. So I spend about a week and a half going over Serve Safe, which is a, a sanitation, uh, national sanitation program. So hmm.
3: Just as
1: uh, a, everything that you would need if you can go into a job. Yeah.
3: So let me ask you this question. Did you ever feel or do you ever feel just so totally disconnected from people whose you know, prior lives certainly were nothing like yours and, and concerned about how to reach them.
1: Yeah. While I, I have had uh, a little bit, especially when we had the restaurant, my wife and I had a little bit of struggle when we were in Maine, um, but I've been very fortunate in my life. And one of the biggest things that I was dealing with and even to a certain extent now is how do I relate to people that are in a decidedly different point in their life? And I, I had a pretty good conversation with with the deputy director, my direct support, Martha, about this right before the summer, and it was about relating. And and what it comes down to is, while we have different backgrounds, the the easiest thing to relate to is honesty and being sincere, um, telling them really what it is. This is what it is to work in a kitchen. This is who I am, and and to be able to be comfortable talking about anything in a very frank conversation, giving praise where praise is due, being able to correct actions when, when that's needed as well, not letting your, your set of standards slide because it makes it easier. So relatability now for me has less to do with who I am and my background and who they are and they, their background. I, I start off on day one as like, I don't care who you were yesterday. I care who you're going to be tomorrow. Looking at it through that lens, it makes it easier to relate because we're not, I'm not comparing myself to you and you're not comparing yourself to me. We're looking at where we're both going to be moving forward. So being able to talk about that and talk about what that requires and how I can help facilitate, train, give you the information makes it easier to be relatable to all the students that come through. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that I have to do where I have to kind of subset people into, I have to teach, treat you like this and you like this. Everybody is in the same point when they come to school. We're all going to the same goal, so everybody is going to get the same thing, at least from, from myself and Chef Tom. Mm-hmm. We, we give them the same thing regardless of who you are.
3: That's my guest, uh, chef, instructor, Bob Kryeski. He teaches at the New England Center for Arts and Technology. His students are the chronically unemployed who are in a 16-week culinary arts and lifestyle training program. Um, I just wanted to just make sure that people understand some of the details about the program. So it's 16 weeks, as we've said. It's free tuition, but here are some things that you have to have to be eligible. You need to be committed to securing a permanent job. You have to be able to commit to the 16 weeks. You have to be at least 18 years old, legally able to work in the state of Massachusetts, GED and set preferred, committed to staying in touch with NECAT for at least two years. You, you talked about that, Joey, after the program. And in Everett, because I want to get back to you about Everett and why this is so, you have to be able to pass a fingerprint Background check. So, Joey Cuzzy, uh, the executive director of NECAT, the reason you have to be able to pass that fingerprint check in Everett is because you got a number of your graduates working at the Encore Casino. True, but that's not really why <laughs> oh, the reason, that we reason we have to okay. fingerprint okay. them.
0: We're very fortunate in that we utilize space provided by. Everett High School. Mm, got it. So we are sharing our space at Everett High School while there are still students in the building. We run an after-hours program at Everett High from 3 to 8 p.m. And because there are still uh, youngsters in the building, we have to make sure that the students that we are running extra through our program- Extra yes. precautions. Mm-hmm.
3: But you got some people at Encore working. We
0: absolutely have some people at Encore. <laughs> Encore has been an amazing partner um, to NECAT in this past year and a half. That's part of the reason why we started our second program in Everett to be a pipeline for um, the culinary jobs. They launched, as you know, this June, and they were hiring over 600 culinary positions, way more than we were going to be able to fulfill, of course, but knew that they had to make a commitment to training people in all of their areas and decided to partner with NECAT on the culinary side of the training. At launch, we placed about 35 graduates from both Boston and Everett at Encore, which has helped us raise our hourly rate of pay substantially. That's um, wonderful. It is. It has yeah. been wonderful. Um, we're averaging $17 an hour for our graduates in all areas of the city of Boston because the playing field has been upped because of the Encore Casino.
3: And they're well-trained, obviously. Yes. <laughs> what is it like to be in the second chance business, Bob Krieski? Because you're the liaison um, for people who are... No, I'm, I'm... For you, What what, you know...
1: I I love it. This is the most fun and best place I've been in my entire career. Uh, and I've been all I've done a lot, and I've been around a lot, and truly love what I do, and uh, look forward to coming in and and doing it daily.
3: And for you, Randy, the recipient of a second chance, what does it feel like to have this this uh, wonderful big chapter change in your life? Yes. Yeah.
6: It's a new start. feel like a new beginning, a whole new me. You know, just staying focused, working, doing the right thing. You know, knowing I got the right support, I had the right training, the right, the right people around me. You know, the love, you know, it was genuine. It's still there. They reach out to me all the time. I reach out to them. You know, the opportunities still grow knowing that I know the culinary side of the field and, and the us Let side. me make
3: a point that you know it. You, you are making bread from scratch. Yes, How man. many kinds of bread from scratch can you make? Nineteen. There you go. Nineteen
6: different kinds every day.
3: <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, you're well-trained. Yes, yes. Could you have imagined yourself, you know, those years when you were sitting in prison where you are now? Was this, was this beyond something you could have imagined at the time?
6: I can imagine it, but not at this level. I figure, like, maybe working at a mom's and pop's bakery, doing cupcakes and brownies, but making the bread from scratch and, and, and seeing the faces that be happy. You know, people get mad over their bread.
3: Oh, I know, because I didn't get any. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't bring any in here, let me just say, yeah, for the mad. listeners. <laughs> yes,
6: yes. So,
3: yes.
6: It's wonderful. <laughs> I, I feel good. I'm happy. I'm happy I accomplished something, and I'm going to stay,
3: stay on it. Joey, what's it like for you being in the second chance business?
0: Second chance, third chance, fourth chance, doesn't matter. Um, We tell our students all the time that your past doesn't need to define your future. I have never worked anywhere where every day you see someone moving along their journey um, and progressing. Every single day, you see people when they first come into NECAT on that very first day, they're not in uniform. They're standing in line. They're apprehensive. Their heads are down. No one's looking you in the eye. No one's shaking your hand. And within a couple of days, you feel them relax. You see them look at you. They see them respond to you. You see them already talking to the chefs and talking to the rest of the staff. Um, You see them each and every day take a step forward to the goal that you know that they're really committed to which is to changing their lives for the better. It's not too often you get to work and see a person right before your eyes change each and every day. So it's enormously gratifying. Um, and it's a privilege, actually, to really be a part of a journey. When you hear someone like Randy talk about what the program meant to him and to see his success, it just fuels, motivates everyone on the team each and every day. So it's a, it's truly a privilege.
3: And I should also mention that you are one of 51 organizations that got a community grant from the city's workforce development program. Yes, we did. Um, Because you're exactly uh, at the mission of those workforce grants. You're setting people up to go right into work and fill much needed jobs.
0: Yes, and we're serving, you know, we're Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan. We're right in the heart of a very troubled neighborhood. We're on 23 Bradston Street, which is next to Suffolk County House of Correction at that intersection of Mel- melnia Cass, and Mass Ave that has been so problematic. There's a methadone clinic on the first floor of our building. There are homeless shelters all around us. Every day we see, you know, the most struggling individuals in the city. So. We get very annoyed when we hear the neighborhood given names like Methadone Mile and Mm. as if there's nothing good happening in this city to help people move toward recovery. We consider ourselves a very important piece of the recovery of people who have struggled for a long period of time. We would love to just be recognized for the role that we play in moving people along their their journey And, and really helping the, you know, an entire underserved population. Those are the people who are looking for the jobs, Unemployment is at the lowest point mm-hmm. in the city that it's ever been. That's who's going to fill the jobs. And if we're not training them properly, these jobs are going to go unfilled, and restaurants are going to continue to operate understaffed. So we're playing that part, helping uh, the restaurant industry find those qualified people, yet we're playing the very important role of helping individuals who've never had a chance get that chance and make something and, and really better their lives.
3: Well, congratulations to all of you and thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Joey Cuzzy is the Executive Director of NECAT. Bob Krajewski is a chef instructor at NECAT. Randy Brimley is a recent NECAT graduate and current bread baker at Whole Foods in Dedham. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on apple Podcasts. be sure to connect with us on social media follow me on twitter at callie crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar wgbh before we go i want to recognize our talented engineer doug sugars who is leaving gbh for an exciting new opportunity thanks so much, Doug, for helping make UTR sound good always. We will miss you. This episode was also engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Melissa Rosales. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.